Hey everybody, it's Bevan. Welcome to Bevan, a femme over 40 and her friends podcast. I'm your host, Bevan. My co-host, Biscuit Reynolds, is at home. He doesn't like to come out into the forest, even for the podcast. I've eaten a forest fresh apple. I'm ready to talk. Um, Today's episode is with my teacher, Leah Garza. Uh, Leah is someone I have known. Uh, She's like a friend of a friend. That's how it began. Um, And then I slip slid into her life um, through social media. And then I, this past year, I've had the incredible privilege to get to take her Akashic Mentorship study. I don't even want to call it a training, but it is classes, but it's also a daily practice in opening our own Akashic records. And we talk about that in this episode um, about what that is. But I have to say the Akashic Mentorship has been transformational for me. Um, It has certainly made me better at the three things that are most important to me in this life, which is to be great at teaching aerobics, um, to uh, love my people better, and um, to be a better Bevan and to be more myself. And I'm really grateful um, to Leah just for taking the leap and teaching that class. And um, I'm really excited to take her Living Systems class, which I intend to take next year. And um, the next level of Akashic Mentorship, I'm just, I'm here. I'm Aaliyah Garza Gurley. She has a great podcast, Magical Baddies. So worth your time. Um, And I'm grateful. This is my third time having Leah on the podcast. And I hope that you go back and listen to the other two episodes, although you can start at this one. Um, Because I think there's been a great evolution in my experience of relationships and relational intelligence. Um, I've also, like, it's been helpful, too, to study with Queer Cosmos, Colin Bedell who's also been on the podcast a couple of times uh, about his relational intelligence skills. Like he has more skills and Leah has more theory and framework about how to perceive people and love people better. Um, she really teaches a lot about like falling in love with the world around you. Um, and the, the key difference, which she explains the first time she was ever on my podcast is there's relational uh, understanding of the world. Um, like I am because you are, I am in relationship with you versus a more colonial transactional view of the world, which is transactional relationships. It's very tit for tat. That's not how I love. I love relationally. I am just here to pour love and to receive love. And you don't always, frequently you don't receive uh, love from where you give love. Um, I think everything is like an infinity symbol, like you're giving and receiving in different directions, but it all comes through. Everything is energy and it's just flowing. Um, And also a profound thing I learned from Leah is that, um, okay, so first of all, I didn't learn this from Leah, but this is an important foundation, which is you don't set boundaries with people you don't want to be in relationship with and maintain a relationship with. So if someone is setting boundaries with you, it's because they want to maintain a relationship with you. Then they're giving you the container with which you can maintain that relationship. Um, but the thing that she taught me is that just because someone doesn't, um, that someone perpetually violates my boundaries, right? For example, doesn't mean they don't love you. Um, and that is just so true. And that has been something I've really learned in this lifetime is that, um, love isn't, doesn't create the action, (laughs) you know, love is a verb, but also like people need to know your recipe. They need to know what are your boundaries And what's your love language? How do you feel love? How do you experience love, right? And so um, I just think it's so cool that in this life, we get the chance to love and be loved. 
and uh, Michael Bernard Beckwith has been teaching this month at Agape um, is that we're not here to perfect our judgment. <laughs> we're here to perfect our loving on this planet. And so you don't incarnate to be judgmental. Um, Dolly Rebecca Parton says this, like, um, if you're spending time judging people, you're doing the work of God. That's not your work. Uh, your work is to do you and to, um, and she's like, I'm here to love everybody. Uh, and I love that about her. And so I try to emulate that as much as I can is to just be loving and giving within the container that I'm willing to do. And I just want to share, I recently, um, decided to create some boundaries around my Instagram stories. So I'm really working on like not being attached or addicted to Mark Zuckerberg's apps. It's really hard. Um, Discord is my favorite alternative to that. And I have a Discord server for my Patreon. Um, and Patreon is a membership support site that is the reason why I can do this podcast is because I'm supported by folks like you who find value in what I put out in the world and want to support me monthly through my Patreon page. And part of that, I have a Discord server for, I call it the virtual locker room because my primary deal is I teach aerobics. Uh, Fat Kid Dance Party Aerobics is for anyone who's ever felt left behind. In mainstream fitness, if you've ever been called too fat, too much, or felt too awkward to dance, mine is the supportive class for you because nobody ever died of awkward. Um, so I'm here to do that, and my members get to come to my Zoom aerobics classes. I have an on-demand membership, and I also do spiritual self-care lessons, so I get a lot deeper than what I offer for free on my blog, which is queerfatfem.com. I've been working on that for 15 years. It's kind of hard to believe since 2008. I've been blogging away. Um, and this podcast, which I started in 2019. So this, I can't believe this is five years of podcasting. Um, and I did a podcast before, but those are in the archives. I'm never going to release those again. Uh, but I'm out here really just trying to pass the peace. I'm here to figure out how I can find peace in my life and share the recipe with everybody else. I am uh, really out here to be a good influence. Um, take what you like and leave the rest. And Instagram changed blogging for me for a while, but then coming back to the written word and coming back to really focusing on creating a thing on a site that I own. I spend thousands a year on my digital uh, footprint. And so that's part of what you're supporting when you support me is just me being able to make these resources free for anybody who needs them. And I'm kind of out here being like Aunt Bevan, like I've just been queer for a long time and been beating, like running my own race and, and really working to just remove uh, the judgment of a bigger society that just wants me to conform in order to belong. And I believe belonging is inherent. And you want to find groups and communities where you belong no matter what. And you don't have to, like, there's no expectation of blind obedience. Um, so, anyway, my Discord is my alternate to Instagram. And I've been trying to figure out, like, how do I want to create on Instagram still? And I have to say I just love doing Instagram stories. It's like creating a little, like you know, one to 10 minute TV show for the homies every day. Um, and I just love it. I, I don't know what it is about I, I, how much I love it, but I do. But I've also recognized that there's a bunch of people, like probably about a dozen or so accounts who like never ever like my posts and never interact with my polls and like just don't interact with me at all. They're just there watching. And I decided I wanted an even energy exchange um, in that. And it's not even an even energy exchange. It's just a little bit of energy in exchange for all the work I do to put it out there, right? Um, and to entertain people. But I'm not really here for entertainment. I'm really here to empower people. And um, I, don't, I just didn't like the idea of people just not wanting me to win. You know what I mean? Because the algorithm is so mercurial. Like it's, 
Um, like it used to be that like a thousand people would watch my stories every day because Zuckenberger would put me in front of people. But now it's like if you have more than a few hundred folks on Instagram, they hide you from people. Everyone I know who's a creator who has a little bit of a following even struggles with getting in front of the people they're trying to help, right? Um, even just the people who actually follow you, right? So I have decided to block people who aren't interacting with my posts, who don't like my posts. And, um, and you know, this doesn't apply to anyone I know in real life. Like, I'm not actually taking attendance, but there's like a dozen. I'm, I'm a Scorpio moon. I'm a natural detective. I can see and I know who is watching and who's not participating. And I'm not here for it anymore. I'm really here to exchange and connect with people who want me to win in life. And there's plenty of people out there who do not want me to win and that's okay. They can read my free blog if they want. They can listen to my free podcast, Hi Haters. Um, I think if you spend any time with me, you're a fan in some way. There's something about me that's drawing you to me, but I'm not here for you. I'm not playing for you. I'm playing for my true fans and people who really want me to win and who like everything that I, I put up there, right? So just making that choice, I did it about a week and a half ago. It, I feel lighter. I feel better. I like, oh, I'm like, oh, I feel so free. I've made this choice. Um, and I created a container where I can feel good creating um, and like also still kind of limiting my time on Instagram. I've also been like um, in these times of genocide. I just want to address the genocide that is ongoing. Um, I'm not excited and I don't admire people who aren't uh, in alignment with my values. And it doesn't need to be the exact values that I have. Like almost all of the people I admire do not wear masks and I still wear masks in public. That's very important to me, but I think that you can model community care in a lot of ways. Um, I also am, am not necessarily just saying, oh, because you haven't taken a stance this way or that way. I don't think anything's a binary, but if I, I see someone's in alignment with values, I'm gonna stay paying attention to them. And I say paying attention because attention, time, those are two things that kind of go hand in hand and money are the three ways that we can resource people and robots and the robots are paying attention to who's paying attention they really want your attention um, and so I'm really working on just being mindful about like who's influencing me and do I want those do I want to live like that person do I want those values so I've unfollowed a few people that I used to very much follow and like listen watch all their IG stories and all those things so I just want to encourage you in these times Figure out who you admire and remember that you become the five people you spend the most time with and curate who you spend that time with. Um, so that's all <laughs> to begin this episode. Um, and I'm really excited for you to get to know Leah if you haven't listened to her before. And I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. This is a good one. So take it away, Bevan and Leah from the past. Welcome back to the podcast, Leah. Thank you, Bevan. It's so nice to be here. Yay. I'm really excited to talk to you as I always am just in life, but specifically about the topics we're going to cover in this podcast. Um, yeah. I'm a hungry hippo to learn more uh, about the way your brain works. I love the way you think. Well, thank you. I'm happy to share. Um, okay. So first of all, were you the person who taught me that earthworms have taste buds all over their bodies? No. Okay. <laughs> Did you know? I mean, that sounds like something I would say, but I don't, I didn't even know that. <laughs> Imagine being an earthworm experiencing the world around you, tasting it. Just, yeah, there's so many things I wouldn't want to taste, though. I mean, yeah. fair, fair. I would want to be, I have pet earthworms now. Uh, oh. My mom has set me up with an earthworm composting bin. Oh, cool. 
And so I really provide a good snacking environment for my earth. Well, that's great. Yeah. I just can't imagine being like, I'm getting in my car and I can taste the seat and I'm going to the grocery store and I can taste the cart. Like, <laughs> yeah. Fair. But if you were an earth <laughs> when your whole existence was about wiggling and eating and pooping, um, you know. Yeah. If I know that I'm only going to be like in dirt and I don't know, I don't know what the point of an earthworm having, maybe they detect different nutrients in the soil or maybe temperatures or vibrations or who knows, but I can't imagine that being useful as a human being in LA. <laughs> there, there's a lot of places that would taste better than LA. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, having left LA, the two things I miss most are the people and food. Um, yeah, but you're saying that you would just taste everything all the time and that no, LA is not, I don't want that here. No, I like that the taste is in this, in the yeah. little bowl. Yeah, um, yeah. Isn't it fun how we evolved in all these beautiful ways? Yes, totally. Yeah. Um, okay. So Leah Garza, uh, let's talk about desire first. Okay. Um, you said this beautiful thing last night that following our desires is rupturous to, or it's disturbing to the state or disrupts the state. Mm -hmm. And you taught me the term rupturous, which I really love. Oh, really? Okay. Cool. Yeah. To like, especially to describe the work you do, helping yeah. people question their reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, will you share with people about the ways in which your desire is important and changes? Yeah. Yes, totally. So from my framework, I'm, I'm an Akashic practitioner. So I am a student of the Akasha, the dimension of consciousness from Vedantic Hinduism called the Akasha. Um, you also might've heard of the Akashic records. Um, it's all, we're just putting it all in the same ca camp, even though you could break it all down. And I'm also a student of decolonial depth psychology. So I study the ways that colonialism has impacted our well-being in the Western world and in what we would call the global north. And <clears throat> the bridge between those two things, it for me is like looking at the big picture, I guess you could say soul level picture on how we operate in our world and then what our world is, our worlds, what our society or culture is set up to turn us into in this, in the, in the colonial world. So one thing that has, you know, after many years of working with clients, people go to readers because they want answers about their suffering. They want to know what is, that's like the big picture of why people go Nobody goes to a reader to be like, hey, my life is great. Can you celebrate that with me? That's not why we do that. We go because we're like, this is some suffering I'm having and I need some perspective or insight. And often for my clients who are mainly people in the United States, the suffering revolves around, I want something and I don't feel either deserving of it or entitled to it, or it feels impossible to attain I feel like I'll never work hard enough to get it. <clears throat> so what that amounts to is I want this thing and I can't have it. And it's miserable. It's miserable. And I felt it. I definitely have felt like, oh, I want this thing and I will never be able to get it. And, or I want this thing and I don't feel like I deserve it, or I don't feel like I'm entitled to it. And so it's like a very 
it's a very common and everyday phenomenon for someone in the United States to have that experience. And as I started to study colonialism and the way colonialism creates um, a reality or an ontology of colonialism, we call that coloniality of being. It's the way that colonial, you know, principles, ideas, values, assumptions, beliefs, um, perspectives, paradigms kind of root down into our being and create our sense of reality. So our sense of reality is governed by the limits of what colonialism could dream. And one of the big dreams of colonialism is to <clears throat> control all natural resources in order to create a privatized economy that we call capitalism. Capitalism is a group project. It's even though there are very few people that benefit from it, it's a group, it's a team, it's a team project. We're in, in a team. It cannot succeed. The people at the top cannot have success unless if all the people underneath them participate in the labor market, unless if they we participate as consumers. Um and so in order to commit our entire lives to either producing capital, consuming things, and being in that like hamster wheel, we would have to really believe in the narrative that the state has for us and how we should spend our lives. And we're taught that very early on. We're taught like, what are the rules? What is morality? What, how do you behave when you go to school? What are, what are the, <laughs> you know, whose turn is it? How do you share? We learn all of these ways that are labeled, you know, they're packaged as, oh, this is, this is etiquette. This is civility. These are manners, but the, sh I don't I hate this word, but like the shadow of that, or maybe the underpinning of that is that it's also teaching us how to be a part, how to want what culture wants us to be. Yeah. So we learn, we learn how to want the thing that's been imposed upon us to want. Um, it's a lot like heteronormativity. Heteronormativity falls in that category. Heteronormativity yeah. is a part of coloniality of being. I have, a, I have a lot to say about that, but we can talk about it later. But so like, I always come back to this and I might've mentioned this on the last time I was with you on the podcast, but I, my historically, I have been an educator. I have a master's in education. I have a teaching credential. I spent almost two decades working in different capacities in education from classroom teaching to wraparound services to administration, da, 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 nonprofit work. And there was a famous study done in 1981 by Jean Anion. And she basically went and studied like hundreds and hundreds of schools across the country. Uh, I think it was like 750 schools, some, a huge number of schools. And she looked at the structure of the schools. How do the schools operate? What are their values? What do they do? How do the students relate to the teachers and so on? And she found that there were like four different kinds of schools in our country. There is the working class school, which serves low income people, people of color, there's the middle-class school, which generally serves middle-class white people. There's the, I think it's like the urban creative schools, which serve also generally white people, but in a higher income bracket. And then there are the executive elite schools, which are basically the schools that like are, you know, cor like corporate elite government officials, 
send their kids to the super high echelon private schools. The working class schools have are across the board. They all use things like a bell system, textbooks, rote memorization in the curriculum style. There are punitive behavior management strategies. There's, um, you know, what they call banking model of education, where the teachers assume the students know nothing and they just import it like you know, download all the information to the students. Students don't have, it's not a bi-directional conversation. The middle-class school still has like the bell system, the textbooks, but there's now an um, a presence of patriotism so that students are learning how to, how to be patriotic at a very young age, how to find their allegiance to a bigger project of the United States or whatever. And then the urban creatives, this is where it starts to diverge. So the wealthier kids get to do stuff like project-based learning. That This is where we get stuff like Montessori models. We get like hands-on learning. There's more input from the students on how they want to direct their experience in learning. Um, and then we get to the corporate elite and those students are essentially being trained to become the elite, you know, leaders of our country, government, um, corporations, et cetera, media. And you can imagine where those students fit into society after they graduate, if they graduate. So the lower, low, the lower income schools, if they graduate. The working class schools are being trained exactly to be laborers, to work in factories, listen for bells, to tell them when their break is, to follow rules, to be the schools are producing the labor market. The middle-class schools are producing middle management. The urban creatives are producing like the tech workers and like the, you know, the entrepreneurs and the executive elites are producing the high-level leadership. So we learn very early on how to desire what is imposed upon us at any level. And all of those desires that are imposed upon us, every one of those students that comes out of every single one of those schools is gonna be plugged right into a role that the capitalist economy has created in order to sustain itself. So it's making little people that think, I, you know, we think this is our identity, but actually we were taught to want the things that we want. Like I'm wearing these chains I'm wearing this shirt. I'm wearing, oh, the glasses are a good example. I look at these glasses. I love these glasses, by the way. And I think, oh, these are so me. But are they really me? Or are they just one pair of many that I picked from a store? And then, but I think I have some agency here. Like, oh no, I chose this. This is, this is what I want. This is so me. It's not me. Somebody else designed these. I didn't design them. Somebody else made them. And I chose from an array which ones I liked the most, but, and then I turn around and I try to feel some sense of ownership over that by saying, this is so me. I'm, I, I still like them. I'm not like faulting myself for, for falling into that trap, but a lot of people are finding at this moment on our planet that other, other, other people's desires, the, the agenda of the state and its desires for our lives do not resonate for us. We don't want to be in the career that we were raised to be in. We maybe don't want to, you know, 
maybe we want to be artists, but we were trained to be, you know, like uh, administrators. Maybe we don't want to be married, but we were convinced that we have to be. Maybe we are queer, but we were told you cannot be queer. You know, like all of these things that we are told to desire is like, and then we try to do it because we think this is how I will have belonging in this culture. This is If I can just do this thing, make my parents proud, fit into society, be normal with quotes around normal, then maybe I will be loved here. And people are finding I absolutely cannot. And my clients, especially the people that are drawn to work with me are looking for other ways to exist. And so under the guidance of my Akashic practice, you know, consulting with this dimension of consciousness, listening for what they teach me, they really put it together for me. And they're like, your desire is a design level of your soul. It's at the design level. Your soul designed for you the things that you want. So basically, I just contradicted myself. Are you saying that the soul designed it? Or are you saying that culture designed it, Leah? It's both at the same time. It's both at the same time. But when we want something, despite what we've been told we should have, and that thing just doesn't go away, like say you've wanted to be a singer your whole life, but you were told that's not practical, get a real job, but you can't let go of that dream. That is a design level of the soul. That means that your soul wants you to experience something about the experience of being a singer. Whether you'll have success or not, that's moot. That's not up to me. That's not, a, that doesn't even matter. There's something about singing that your soul wants that iteration of you to experience for the purpose of becoming more yourself. When we listen to the desires of the state, don't be a singer, get a job, ignore that. We kind of depart from knowing ourselves. We, we know we become more the state we become more the identity of what's been imposed upon us but when we can listen to our desire we really divest from that state-driven narrative we divest from the role that has been imposed upon us and you might think like well what does being a singer have to do with like you know political rebellion uh, you know the a to b connection isn't there being a singer does not equal rebelling against the government but Following the desire of your soul is a divestment from what the state would like you to be in order to produce more capital for it. And so as we follow our desire, we move away from the state agenda and we move toward our own. And something really miraculous happens when we listen to our own path, when we listen to our own desires, is that we come into this harmonious balance where everyone's needs are met. So it isn't the case that if you listen to yourself, you're selfish and well, you know, you can't just like leave your career and go do whatever you want. What about all of the stakeholders in your life? What about all the things you've worked for what about your family? The transition over to yourself is hard, but once you're in there, you will find yourself in, in, a, in a local economy that, that in which you sustain life and it sustains you which is essentially a living system, which is what I teach in living systems. It's a system of existence in which every member every has a role and, and the whole thing works together for the sustenance of life. So that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> I love Just it. A... Here we are in a nutshell. 
Mm-hmm. Um, in a nutshell, you doing you uh, is not what the machine wants. The machine just wants you to produce capital for the nation state. Yeah. And it's really hard because we end up thinking, like when I was a teacher, I didn't hate it. I liked teaching a lot, but there were things about the work of being a teacher that I absolutely hated. I hate dealing with administration. I hate test taking and test scores and being accountable to testing. I hate that you can't talk about certain things. I I just, there was things that I just hated. And yet I would say to myself constantly like, no, you're a teacher. You love this. That's just, you know, even though it was like depleting me and killing me to be doing the things I hated every single day, I believed that my identity was to be a teacher. I chose this. This is so me. It wasn't me. I mean, in many ways, you still are a teacher. You're just- I'm definitely a teacher. Yeah. (laughs) The the act of teaching, I love. I love that role. But the work of teaching in public schools is abhorrent and should be abolished. Yeah. We'll agree. Um, as someone who really, I mean, I think in many ways we're just not taught how to bear uncertainty, which is the only reality. Um, yeah. I think part of like test taking, like pass fail, is not life. Life is really fail, 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 succeed, fail, 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 succeed. Right. 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 Well, a test, a standardized test, is a really good barometer for seeing where a student will fit into society. You know, like it's a very good barometer. We have a. There's a whole. There is a whole like there there is a whole field of study that has shown that like students that test early on poorly get tracked into special ed. Students of color that get tracked into special ed get tracked into prison. So tests are pushing you in directions. Um can you speak to the ways in which parenting is the front line of the carceral system uh what do you what what do you (laughs) well like okay so you know like the school system is tracking kids towards you know prison right and then parents are like sort of an actor on behalf of the state like trying to get us into this conformity like you have to do this you have to do this and you need to fall in line or you're gonna get punished and Mm -hmm. Thinking about that, I don't know where I read it, but I was reading it recently about like how parents are that front line of the carceral system and like the way that we're taught to parent through punishment mm. is sort of setting people up for like conformity at all costs or you mm. will be rejected by society and put away. I don't know if I agree with that. Um, I'm, I want to push back on any kind of statement that pathologizes a person or people inside of the nexus of the carceral state because it isn't you know if parents are acting on behalf of the state then they also have become victims of the state so it's really hard for me I can I see what you're saying but it's really hard for me to agree with that and I would also say that my instinct I'm just speaking on instinct I don't have any data to back this up is that that would be different for white families compared to families of color because families of color who are, who have system involvement and whose kids are tracked into like juvenile and then 
adult incarceration are often victims of recidivism too, going in and out throughout their li lifetime experience in and out of the system, in which case, I, I don't know, it has just been my experience, both from inside my family and as a teacher in, in like low-income communities of color, that the parents are trying to keep their kids like they're all on the same side and that is the side against the police in general so but i can see white families from inside and outside of my family like experience from inside and outside of my family where the parents do invoke that kind of punitive stance I can, yeah. So I don't know. That's just my hunch, but I haven't studied it to be able to back that up. I love the way thank you me. think. I'm glad you're willing to, to discuss. Oh, thank um, you. Okay. So my next question for you is I wish we had your slide that shows the two directions, but will you talk uh, about attempt versus outcome? Yeah. Yes. So in the mentorship that we're in together, Bevan, the point of the Akashic Mentorship, well, what would you say if I could talk about, if I ask you, like, what is the objective, what's the, what's the goal for someone to take the mentorship? What would you say? Like, if someone's like, hey, I'm thinking of doing this, Bevan, what do you think the goal is for students in this class? It's interesting because people on the outside of me think it's um, a class about readership for the Akashic Records, but it's actually more of a class about um, becoming more you and yourself and developing a strong relationship with the availability that we all have I think like I think we're all psychic to a degree and like mm -hmm. we can and I would even I rare I don't use should unless I'm very intentional about it we can and should develop a relationship with all of this guidance yeah. it's just available yeah. this is our breath yeah so yeah. I think the mentorship is really Leah Garza's brilliant handholding through you developing not only like an awareness of what the Akasha is or Akashic records. Yeah. You said at the beginning of class, like Akashic records is just the best way they could describe it when they started calling, yeah. right? But it could yeah. even be called downloads in this digital day and age, right? Because in many ways, I'm clear yeah. cognizant. So it's just like, poof, I have this whole knowing that's like yeah. a long thing, but I didn't have to go through a big long thing to know the thing. It was just right. There yeah yeah so, yeah so like in many ways like you're teaching us to open up the treasure chest of desires yeah. many of which we've stuffed away for years and years because we were like playing the yeah. game yeah uh, and, uh, so yeah so i think it's just a journey to yourself which that's the language you've used but i yeah. think it's the best language spot on that's exactly what i would hope a student would say toward the end of this mentorship <laughs> so thank you not to test you because we're not testing but... i'm a pleasure to have in class <laughs> you really are. Um, so yeah, the the goal of this whole journey in the mentorship is to become more yourself. I rooted in this quote from Joyce Carol Oates, I never change, I simply become more myself. And the the perspective that I'm offering students through my own you know experience in the Akasha is that everything exists for you. You are the center of existence, the center of the universe everything in your world is exactly just for you. Every experience is designed to tell you about yourself. Every thing that triggers you is telling you about yourself. Every trauma you've experienced, every desire that you have, 
it's telling you about yourself in the in the colonial world we're really focused on the external the material so if we have a desire we're not focused on what is it saying about me we're focused on how do i get it because if i get it then i'll be better in some way and i'm trying to reframe that for people like the getting is kind of not important like it is but it's also not we don't have control over the outcome we only have control over whether or not we attempt our desires and whether or not we attempt our desires will tell us about what we think about ourselves so if you have if there's like if you are that person that's wanted to be the singer forever you want to i want to be a singer and you ignore the desire ignore the desire ignore the desire and maybe you ignore it because you've been told you're not worthy of it. You're not good enough. You don't deserve it. Do something practical. It's a waste of time. So you might have all these rationalizations for why you don't attempt it. It doesn't matter what they are because the fact that you don't attempt it is telling you are telling your body, I don't meet my needs. My needs are not met. My needs will not be met. I will not try when I need something. There's no difference between a want and a need from the Akashic perspective. If you want it, you have to try to get it it becomes a need. Obviously in the colonial world, we have a very different def definition of needs. Needs are like, you know, well, you need food and water, but you don't need a PlayStation, you know? And, and I would, I would argue like that argument is based on what do you need to live? You don't need a PlayStation to live. You do need food and water, but what do you need to become more yourself is to attempt every desire. It, it takes you toward more yourself. You don't pine, you don't long, you don't yearn when you know that if you want something, you'll try to get it for yourself. So I made a diagram to try to demonstrate this, that like, we're not concerned with the outcome. We don't know what will happen. You can try and become a singer and it might fail completely. That part is out of our control. But what's in our control is the attempt. And so when you come up against a desire, you have two options. You can either go in one direction and ignore it and not try it and create a state of being that feels like my needs are not met. And then I have the experience in the world of my needs are not met because this is what I believe is true. Or you can go in the direction of I'll attempt it, which creates a state of being of self-advocacy. When I want something, I advocate for myself. I go after it for myself, which creates a, a, a state of being and an experience of, I try, it's possible. There's a pathway. It's neither is right or wrong, but both the way we respond to it is telling us about ourselves. Absolutely. And what's interesting is that's very much um, parallel to what all the success books and leadership books I read talk about failure, right? Like yeah. failing forward by John Maxwell is excellent. I wish I had read it at 16 years old. Uh, like, it's just the idea that in order to succeed, you have to figure out what doesn't work before you realize what does work. Right. Mm -hmm. And success is honestly like the worthwhile pursuit of a dream or goal. It's just like an ongoing thing. It's not like poof, you've arrived. Yeah. Like it's very colonial, you know, like, yeah do a trick, get a treat. It's teaching you to be an employee versus the entrepreneur is paid to figure things out and solve problems. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would also say too, something that the Akasha revealed to me sometime in late spring, early summer was that 
the energy exchange is when you plant the seed. It's not when the seed becomes a plant or a flower. Mm. It's just yeah. that, that that's when the energy exchanges. So like, even yeah. if like I may plant a fig tree that then gives me delicious figs in five years, yeah. like, yeah. And, wow, can't, I cannot wait to have a fig tree in my garden. Yeah. Oh, God, I love figs. Um, that's one of the things I miss about LA is like neighbor figs. Ugh. Oh yeah. There's a lot of figs here. Yeah. Uh, so you know, Do you know about how figs are made. No, you need to Google that. I, I there are like wasps that root into the fig fruit, and then they disintegrate in the like acid of the fruit. And so when we're eating a fig, we're eating like a dissolved wasp body. Do vegans still eat figs? I don't know. Oh, what a great question. I don't even know if I just said that right. But that's what I think it is. But you should Google it because it's wild. I will look it up because it is delicious and a little crunchy. So you never know. Um, oh my God, that's amazing. I, I never knew how good fresh figs were till I moved to LA and a neighbor would just give us heaps of figs. They're and so also, good. And it's like also really something I learned a lot in the from the Akasha is the temporality of opportunity. Yeah. Um, like a fresh fig is only good for so long and then eventually yeah moldy and once I realized that year one I was like shit year two I gotta eat these figs you know yeah Yeah. enjoy this season while it lasts yeah remembering that like the energy is when you sow the seed and it doesn't matter if like you smile at someone and they're grumpy back to you the what matters is that you sent out the energy you desired to send out and I'm not telling people to smile I'm just saying that's the energy yeah yeah it what we do how we opt. And and again, I'm not even saying people should do anything, but every way that we engage and entangle with the world around us is an opportunity to, to learn more about ourselves and where, what we believe, what we, what ontology we're in. Yeah. All of that. Magic. Um, Okay. I would love to talk to you about disgust um, and your perspective on disgust, your experience with disgust. I was like trying to reference it with a friend and I don't know if it was something I, I, I scrolled through your Instagram, couldn't find it. So I don't know if it's something you said in a story or in a class, but mm. tell us about disgust. I have a few posts about disgust. Disgust is like, mm, I mean, like disgust is really the the monolith of my mental health journey (laughs) um for me as a person who experienced ongoing like sexual assault as a child I believe this is what I think has happened a byproduct of that has been this development of a narrative in my head that I'm disgusting I know that unmet needs drive behavior. So if I behave in a way where my thoughts tell me I'm disgusting, I know that that is only happening because that's my body's best strategy to deal with an unmet need. But that doesn't mean it's not a deeply uncomfortable and painful thing to have a voice in your head telling you you're disgusting. And about in the fall of 2021, I experienced this catalyst moment that propelled me into a healing journey that I did not foresee. I didn't, I I didn't know I needed it. I didn't know it was coming. I didn't, I wasn't looking for it. Um, I started doing EMDR therapy. I started doing talk therapy twice a week. I was really like 
deep into, I, I was having extreme dissociation. Basically it was the recovery of a memory of rape that propelled me into being raped, that propelled me into this healing journey. And I noticed, you know, like I mentioned my, my career in education, I, if I were to categorize the identity of Leah, I would be like, she's a Mrs. Trunchbull from Matilda. <laughs> like Leah was a hard ass. Leah runs schools. Leah de-escalated a student with a gun in Watts. Like Leah has to, you know, make CPS reports. Leah is not soft. That was just what I thought I was. And as I go through this like healing journey, and it's not even like a, it's not even like I'm consciously talking about these things or trying to understand them from a cognitive perspective. It's just, the healing is just happening to me. EMDR happened to me. It peeled away things, not, not in a conscious way. And what emerged was this very soft Leah, this like softness that I didn't know was a part of me because I really thought I was just this hard bitch. And, and what I learned was like, wow, that whole version of me that I thought was an identity was actually just a trauma response because I was living in fear of the world for decades because of what happened to me as a kid. And now that I've like shifted my relationship to it in whatever way through therapy, through MDR, through my Akashic practice, whatever, I don't need to be hard anymore. That, that trauma response isn't useful. And I just started to change and want things that I did not value before. Like I started to really value like cuteness and aesthetics and like, you know, I don't know if people, are people going to see this on YouTube? Yeah. Like, look at these nails. I never would have like cared about that. It would be not that I don't care for people that have them or judge people, but like for me, the aesthetic is not important because actually this whole time, I don't even want people to see me much less see a taste or an aesthetic, a palette that I put into the world. I want to be unnoticeable to the world because that way I reduce the risk of being harmed again. And I had no idea I had this whole perception of like, fuck men. I don't need a man, even though I was in a relationship with a man for a very long time. I thought that was some kind of feminism, but no, that was a trauma response too. <laughs> I thought that was some kind of liberation, liberatory perspective on, and, and I am deeply, um, you know, I study colonialism. I know all about heteropatriarchy. I can talk to you ad nauseum on that, but the way that I perceived it, I thought was like, this is what I've learned. These are my politics. But really, I was so deeply afraid of what men had done to me. And these things just started to melt away. And I started to have these new like interests and longings to like be in the world and like be seen and be attractive and be cute and be soft and be romantic. And almost like I, I was just like starving for it. And I couldn't, I just, I couldn't quench. I couldn't like satiate this need to be like perceived and, 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 and touched and, and related to by the world. But something in me was holding on to 
the fact that that's very scary, you know, like the trauma I had experienced was still telling me like, no, that's a risk. And so as I'm going through this process, I start having these self-talk moments of disgust. You're disgusting. You're disgusting. I mean, it was to the point where like, I got as close to like suicidal ideation that I had like closer than I had been in probably like the last 20 years because the disgust narrative was so oppressive just in my head constantly and thankfully I had my Akashic background so I know Leah that's not you this these are thoughts you're thinking because this is a strategy to deal with whatever the risk is that your body thinks it's it's gonna endure by you going out and trying new things in the world being in relationship talking to random strangers in line at the store like your this is not who you are you aren't actually disgusting and I also knew from my own education in colonialism that the way I was conceiving of disgust is actually maybe like a narrative that was conceived in like early race science and anthropology. The idea that there are bodies that are disgusting is one of the ways that the medical model was created, that there are normative bodies and there are non-normative bodies and the non-normative ones aren't just ill or pathologized but they are disgusting and I started to really dig into you know my disgust revolves around like my fatness my disgust revolves around my hardness my disgust revolves around my like I have this joke that I'm like a I'm like a very administrative person like I have there's nothing to me I'm just like an administrator like there's always like a joke that I have about myself. Like my disgust revolves around that. Like nobody wants to invite the administrator to a party. You're just a bummer. Like all of these things were cropping up and knowing that they're not real, but knowing that the experience was real, I started to like really dig into what it is. And I wrote this paper in, when I was doing my coursework for PhD, we had to talk about sites of violence. And I talked about my body being as a fat body being a site of violence <clears throat> and what i came to in the paper was that i've been told my whole life that i'm not attractive because of my body but i know that i've experienced people being attracted to me and then in that like nanosecond after understanding that, I also see them be so conflicted by being attracted to a fat body that they invoke whatever the colonial narrative is to like get that out of their heads. And so I've had the experience and maybe you've had this experience, Bevan, or maybe some listeners have had this experience where like someone hits on you. You're like, no, thanks. And then the next response, and this is only from cis men, by the way, the next response is like, well, fuck you, you fat bitch. So it's like, well, just that's funny because just one second ago, you know, like I can see the two narratives right next to each other, fighting with each other about how people are receiving me. But the one that wins out is that I'm disgusting. And what I started to think of was like, wow, just the presence of my body alters people's states of being. It puts people into conflict and it it puts them into conflict that they being in proximity to fatness jeopardizes their own belonging and their own ability to be loved. So they want to stay as far away from it as possible. 
And I was like, that's kind of like spell work actually to like shift reality with just my presence is like kind of, I mean, it's kind of magical in a sense. And I don't mean magical to make myself feel good. I mean, magical that like it's altering reality. It's like doing magic. And, um, you know, none of this is, I'm not saying any of this to be like, I'm happy about it. Or, you know, I'm not saying any of it to be self-congratulatory. I'm not saying any of it. I don't really identify myself as like a, 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 a you know, a fat activist or I, I just like, it just hasn't been my thing. But I certainly can see the way it's deeply tied, like my body is deeply tied to disgust and how people experience me. And so that was all coming up so strong as I'm like going through this healing process. And what I like started studying were like the disgusting goddesses that are out there, like in the Mexica pantheon, the mother goddess Quatlique, who wears like a necklace of hearts, human hearts, and she wears like a a belt of like men's hands and feet. And um, she's often seen as having two serpents as a head. And she's like very rotund. She's like short and square shaped and stocky. She's not statuesque. She's not Amazonian, but she's like a very potent God in that pantheon. And and I just started like reading more about like, where does this come from? And what am I actually afraid of? And what I found was that disgust is not real. There's nothing disgusting. Like disgust is real. Like if I like, you know, open the milk and it's past the date and I sip it, and I'm like, whoa, it's disgusting. Okay, sure. I had like a visceral response to something that I shouldn't be eating, but human bodies cannot actually be disgusting but we're taught that they are. And so then we believe that they are. But if you go all the way inside that rabbit hole of disgust, what you inevitably come out on the other end with is beauty because there is nothing in the universe that isn't beautiful. And I'm saying this knowing full well that we are observing a genocide happening. And I still stand by it. That like across all existence, existence in and of itself is beautiful and it's not beautiful that's like charged with a value assignment the way we assign beauty in our colonial culture it's like the poetics of existence it's it's yeah so disgust is an illusion but the experience of the threat of it is so real i love i love the way you think um Okay, so, so many thoughts, but I really want to tease out the alchemist that some of us very unwittingly are for other people by simply existing in a body that is, looks, I know how threatened I have experienced other people being with me as a fat woman who loves her body and is self-loving and has worked very hard on that. Um, and where they feel threatened because they bought into this system where if they policed their body to be thin and maintained this like normative shape, that therefore they would be safe and have value. Whereas I experience safety and value because I am and because I choose that. Um, and that is very threatening for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. And the same um, thing for, for men, like, and that whole, like, I mean, listen, cis men, it, privilege means you didn't have to think about it, right? So they just get to exist in this world and now confronted with the ways in which other people are liberated, right? And like, it's it really interesting how it's like, if you don't, like, they really operate out of this desire forward and it's their sexual desire where they just get to desire something and hit on people and do whatever they want, even if it's totally inappropriate. Mm. And like, then uh, it switches to, well, I'm going to try to control you in this other way. If you won't submit mm. to my desire, mm. I'm going to try to control you in this way. And it's really interesting, like how I think in order to really just live in a way that is soft and I think happier for people in general like is is to also just kind of release all these ways in which you need to be in control of other people um I don't think I don't think that cis men didn't have to think about it I think the process of genderizing for any gender is soul crushing yes cis men have been crushed into being cis men and our our society is set up to give them privileges that other people are not granted I think there's a huge cost that they had to incur in order to fit that. And, and I, I, um, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say, I love my body. I don't hate my body, but I think it's like, even just showing up and like, like I've noticed that I've, I have changed the vibe in a room, or at least I felt like I did by just like being in like a math class and asking a question, whereas everyone else in the class was too afraid to ask. And then suddenly there's a, f I mean, I'm just going off a hunch of like, the fuck do you think you are asking questions? We don't even feel like we could ask a question and you're in that body. Like, that's just like the sense that I got. So it isn't even like, I don't even think I've thought about it as deeply as like what other people have had to do to their bodies. I literally am just like, I'm not even thinking about bodies. Just like if I, if I clear my throat loud enough, it can be upsetting to people that feel like they don't have the entitlement to be seen or heard in any way that is authentic. And it's just, I don't know. I think like my Akashic perspective just gives me so much compassion for even like I'm not gonna like if someone's gonna bully me like clearly we're not gonna make friends I'm gonna get away from you as fast as I can and then when I get home and I have some distance I'm gonna have so much comp compassion that like that's the best way that you knew how to relate to the world was in that way because you don't have a better strategy and that sucks that's so miserable because on the other side of disgust is beauty so if you could get through your bullshit the whole world wants to love you too. It wants to love everyone. There actually is no disgusting body. There is no one that is unlovable. Unlovableness is a construct. It's not real. Can you hear my cat? She's trying to get in. I'm not going to let her, but she's scratching. The Zoom technologies have filtered your cat's noise, but okay, we are yeah. trying to all feline overlords in this town. Can not her. I. She's not. She's not allowed. She's not nice. <laughs> I love your complicated relationship with your feline overlord. It's actually pretty simple. It's not complicated at all. I hate her. She hates me. It's as simple as that. No, I don't. I love her. But um, I don't like her. Can you hear my feline overlord snoring? Uh -uh. Very, very no. 
There you go. It's a, my, I have a very uh, simple, worshipful relationship with my, yeah. my overlord. He really is my benevolent overlord. That's good. Um, okay. So I want to talk about, you mentioned the genocide that we're experiencing. And there is this beautiful and heartbreaking photo I saw just yesterday of a woman clinging to an ancient olive tree that's being bulldozed by the Israeli government. Mm. Um, and it's just such a great example of being in love with the world around you and how we can be in relationship with more than just human beings that like the whole world is like our dyad, right? Like one by one, we're in relationship with, you know, plants, trees, animals. Mm-hmm. I can't believe I ever thought of animals as not sentient. Um, like mm-hmm. dirt. We're also in relationship with like things we use, like our phones, um, cannabis, mm-hmm. right? Like really just examining the relationship I have with the entire world around me has helped me to link back to discuss, care less about what other people think because I'm involved in these relationships that I'm having because this is the quality of my life is the quality of my relationships. And I would love for you to talk about dyads and relationships and all of that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I feel like you just said it all. <laughs> I don't know what I can add to that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's like what I study is ontology. I study, I study psychology, but like what I'm really interested in in my dissertation is um, how we perceive reality and what what is what what counts as reality for for us in the global north and what counts as reality for us in colonialism is not the same reality that everyone around the world experiences. But colonialism doesn't validate other realities. It maybe says stuff like. Well, there's cultural relativism, there's like different perspectives on reality, but it's all the same reality. And what what the ontological turn says is like, no, actually, these are different realities that different people experience. And in the colonial world, one of the, in the colonial reality, one of the like the earmarks is that we believe in our individualism. We really believe that we are individual fixed bodies. We believe that our bodies are closed systems. Nothing can get in or out. We believe that we are impenetrable. We believe that we're immutable. And in other ontologies, the the way that people know existence is through their relationships. And in my living systems class, I compare the ontological differences between Cogito ergo sum, which is the Rene Descartes, the Cartesian um, concept of I think, therefore I am. So like because I cognitively know, that is how I know that I exist versus the, you know, kosha. um, It's like a whole diasporic group, like the kosha. concept of Zulu concept of Ubuntu, which is I know because of my relationships. I know who I am because of my relationships. I know what reality is because of relationships. So those are like, I'm not giving like a moral judgment or cultural assessment of those two things. I'm just saying that those two concepts come from different realities different, not just different perspectives on reality, but literal different realities. And it looks for us in the Western world, 
we don't believe that that's a different reality because we only believe, well, no, they're, they're in the same world that we're in. Like I can stand next to a Zulu person and we're standing on the same land. So it's the same reality. And it's, and, and what the ontological turn says, like, no, it is a different reality. And so like one of the things that I'm really like a good example of this is, um, you know, there's a scientist that I study. Her name is Karen Barrage. She's at UC Santa Cruz. She's a, a feminist quantum physicist. And she proposes this concept. She has a lot of concepts. She wrote the book, Meeting the Universe Halfway. It's excellent. And um, one of the concepts that she tries to um, get across in talking about entanglement and becoming and all this stuff is this idea of interaction interaction is the phenomenon of engaging with something and in the engagement everything everyone involved changes and shifts versus the idea of interaction in which two bodies might come together interact and then leave untouched so it they they're like the example that we've seen like I think there's a YouTube video about this is like even if you didn't get COVID you still knew about it maybe you knew people that got it maybe you knew someone that died from it maybe you got the vaccine maybe you got tested you still and when you engaged with all those things you changed with it you're not the same person that you were before COVID happened whether you got it or not, whether you, if you did get it, then it literally went into your body and used your DNA to recreate itself the way a virus does. So like you, you changed in that way on a cellular level, you changed. So in the, in the Baradian ontology, you interacted with this thing, you changed, it changed. We saw the COVID vaccine mutate into all these different strains we saw it change in and of itself we saw the way funding for things changed we saw the way the news changed the way it reported it we saw the way you know hospitals responded to it changing all of this phenomenon is not just oh we engage with it and then we leave and we're done with the phenomenon we change as we go i mean there are still places that might forevermore advise you to wear a mask when you go inside them because they have changed because of the interaction. In interaction, in the ontology where interaction, interacting happens, you would be like, yeah, I got it, but I'm over it. It's done. I got COVID. It's, or I didn't get COVID. Thank God it didn't touch me. And you have a perception of I'm unchanged. I, I interacted with it and then I'm done with it, and but I'm not different. So in the interactive world, in the interactive ontology, we don't really understand relationships. We think that we are individuals and that we are unmutable. But in this interaction, we understand that everything is relational. Does that does that address what you're talking about? It does. Um, okay, sort of. Uh, one of the most beautiful things I witnessed in my grandmother's life um, is when I was born, and throughout my childhood and teenage years, she was a real estate agent in Beverly Hills, very fancy, mm -hmm. very much career identified Cap Capricorn woman, which I'm grateful for the example of like a woman can do this thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then in her later years, 
I saw the way her eyes lit up when she was around her family. I saw how much her relationships meant to her um, and how I was like, oh, interesting how like her value was really in this thing that she did versus later in life her value or at least the value she experienced in the world was with these people she loves. And I think in many ways, like in my softening, because I really have also felt the softening over the years um, as I increase, I would say it's self-compassion and then compassion for others and that feedback loop. Because when you're judging people, you're pushing them aside and, uh, you know, and then usually you're judging yourself. I think that's a feedback mm-hmm. loop too. And it's just really beautiful how I love the way you talk about just falling in love with the world around you. Yeah. Because in many ways, like we can't, like grandmother loved us so much but like we were only available to love as much as we were available to love and I think if I were in relationship with her on the earth side now I would be far more available to her because I recognize how important that is right and so um and I'm more willing to fall in love with the world with less of a an expectation that that thing's gonna fall in love back with me like my cat my cat sees himself as my overlord like I mean I know he loves me in his own way but he doesn't love me the way I love him you know yeah so you don't know that fair enough fair enough fair enough but you know what I mean I'm just curious can you talk about like just this idea of like falling in love with the world yeah this is something that the records the Kasha shared with me like develop a falling in love orientation and you know part of like studying the Akasha is that you transform your your understanding of what love is and in our culture we think love is like a phenomenon I'm going to fall in love. It's going to happen. Even the way we, we, you know, express it linguistically to fall is like to do something powerless. Like I slipped in it. I fell in it. I, I don't have any control over it. And um, the records are like, what if instead of falling in love as a phenomenon, it's actually an orientation that you understand that everything in the world is there for you. And so you go out into the world and you are charmed by it. And even, even things that are like annoying or disappointing, it's charming because it's so the essence of that thing. You're interacting, you're interacting, you're interacting, you're engaging with things exactly as they are. And it started to make me reflect on like, how like I have been, I mean, I'm, I don't want to say I've been loved to an extent. I think love is actually limitless, but the way the people in my life have shown me love was shaped immediately by by how much of an ability they have to accept things as they are. So if we can't accept things as we are, then we have a narrative of should, we have a story of like, oh, it should be this way. I'm disappointed because it's not. So I'm going to hold my love back. I'm not going to show you. I'm not going to love you just as you are. I'm not going to give you unconditional love. My love will have conditions placed upon you. And that's not what a falling in, a falling in love orientation means that you are in the world exactly as it is. And it's charming. It's charming as it is. Even the like times you're stuck in traffic, even the times that they ran out of your favorite thing at the store, even the times that a random bill comes in and then you have to call and try to get it sorted. You have a crazy conversation that's cool with the person on the other line. Like all those things are like, they're so, the the experience of being alive in a human body 
they're so they're so alive and how can you not just be so like how can you not fall in love with everything then I think there's another like you know I don't know value that our society holds that like if you fall in love then you somehow no longer have boundaries or like you know you're just a passive receiver of this thing so like I can like go outside and like you know the other day like I live near Griffith Park and there are you know coyotes that come down from the park in at like around midnight and one night I I was here with my boyfriend and we like heard a dog someone left their dog outside and you could hear the dog like barking or whatever and then you start hearing the coyotes howling and you hear the dog barking and then you hear the dog howling and then you hear nothing silence the coyotes killed that dog and ate it or did whatever they did with it and that's not a fun story that's not a fun experience that's someone's pet that's gone that's like it's a violent thing that would happen. I used to have a little tiny eight pound dog and we guarded that thing like crazy when we would go to the park. I would never want that to happen to me or any of my friends or anyone I know or anyone that they lose their dog in that way. And yet when I see coyotes, I'm so charmed by them. Like I see them when they come down into Los Feliz and their tails are straight out because they're not happy dogs with their tails bouncing around. They're hunters that are coming down for food and they walk in a straight line and they're looking around like hypervigilantly. And there's something like so incredible about watching them be themselves. It's charming and I can't help but fall in love with them. I can't help but even anthropomorphize them and be like, oh yeah, you're looking for dinner. You're like, you know, like project onto them a story of what they're doing. And it doesn't mean I like that they killed that dog, but I accept that coyotes are coyotes. Yeah. That's beautiful and terrible all at once. Yeah, I know. But I think back to like how my, my dad had a really hard time showing unconditional love to me and my sister because he couldn't accept himself and therefore he couldn't accept me and her for the way we were. And so his only currency was how much he would show or not show love. And yeah, it's miserable for me and her. I'm hell of in therapy for this for many years, but it was miserable for him to be constantly measuring how much he could be a lover. And that's not how I want to live at all. Um, you said a beautiful thing once about boundaries and how people who don't respect your boundaries, it doesn't mean they don't love you. Yeah. Um, and like learning someone's recipe. I know you changed it to algorithm, although I still think learning someone's recipe just sounds cuter. So that's what no, I know. Crystal, Crystal gave um, other names too. She said uh, what a care guide, like you would find on a garment, like launder this way and like dry, you know, no dry cleaning or like hang dry. Huh? I was like, that's a, that's a good example too. My best friend, Rachel calls it uh, the proper care and feeding of a Bevan. Uh, oh, that's cute. Right. So it's like, everyone has this recipe, right? It's like the boundaries yeah. you 
the container you need for the relationship yeah. you want and then your love languages like the way you receive love and like yeah. how you like to experience the world and the people who are in relationship with you ideally you're in relationship with people who want to know your recipe want to yeah. like I want to be the best chef yeah 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 I that's something that like yeah the Akasha revealed to me was that like there's not a shortage of love love by definition cannot be quantified and if it can't be quantified that means it cannot be diminished or hoarded or wasted or you know any of the ways that we quantify things that doesn't apply to love so when people are using that kind of language it isn't because there's a shortage of love it's because they are not in a harmonious relationship with their settings. They're not having their brown, their boundaries are being breached. Their needs are not being met. They're not living that optimal existence because of other things, but it has nothing to do with love. Love is present in the darkest places. It's not even an issue. Yeah. But we just don't know. We often don't even know what our settings are. We, so how could we know? how to meet those things if we don't even know that they exist yeah and if we're bouncing back to heteronormativity like if you're trained to think that love looks this one way but yeah. it, love can look lots of ways even rough ways right um, yeah it's it's really interesting to just get to know yourself enough to know i mean i think knowing my recipe is more important than knowing anybody else's yeah and yeah. hopefully people are you get into relationship with people that do know there's a little bit at least and can tell you, here's what I prefer. Here's what I don't prefer. Mm-hmm. And then you can decide, oh, can I abide by that or can I not? And if I can't, then maybe this isn't the right relationship for me. But it isn't because there's a lack of love there. You can love someone deeply and know like, oh, you are, we are no good together. Yeah, it's really true. And like beautiful to understand that when you can come into alignment with understanding that like that's not a failure it's just a lesson yeah 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 it doesn't make it easy but yeah I totally agree with that yeah Yeah. not supposed to be easy it's just supposed to be worth it yeah yeah um what was the last thing I was going to ask you about oh I had a nice little cap uh oh tell us about what you offer living systems yeah. mentorship what that's looking like for 2024 and yes yeah. yeah so I do three things I teach a course called living systems I teach an Akashic mentorship and I do one-on-one services my courses are winding down for the year the second the first cohort of the mentorship the second cohort of living systems are winding down in December they're going to end the new cohorts Living Systems is going to start in March. Akashic Mentorship Level 1 is going to start in April. And then I'm hoping that Level 2 of the Akashic Mentorship starts in May of next year. Uh, I know. Um, It's exciting. Living Systems is a more, it's it's not a spiritual course. It's more academic. And I don't want to say political, but because we don't study politics, but we essentially talk from an, like an academic, and it's like an academic class where we talk about the ecology 
of belonging and offering alternative points of view on existence, including decoloniality. We go very deep into that, into ontology, post-humanism, border theory, borderlands, Nepantla. We talk about destabilizing the human body. We talk about modernism and how it has a, a hold on us. We talk about everything that colonialism has created for us. And we end the course with thinking about what can we, how can we insert our agency to do differently if we want. Um, it's a year long it's really, really fun. And it is a healing class, even though it's not a spiritual class. It's like healing to have a space to do this stuff. The Akashic Mentorship is for people who would like to develop a personal relationship with the Akasha or Akashic Records or the source of your consciousness um, through an exploration of the values of the Akasha, as I've learned them, you know, unconditional love, unmet needs, inherent goodness. We, we talk about loves, we talk about, you know, the depth of unmet needs and trauma. And then we work on our own personal pathways to the Akasha. And then we spend the end of the class exploring the resonant path, our desires, what we came to experience in this iteration of life. That is a really special class. I've really, really enjoyed doing it. It's been, my life is changing because I'm drinking my own Kool-Aid. <laughs> like I'm, big things are changing in my life right now. Um, and the students who really participated in it, in it, participated in the curriculum, their lives are changing too in unforeseen ways that they are so excited about. And then next year, the level two is gonna be called Relational Akasha. We're actually going to study, I think we're going to cover three things. One is readership, which I didn't want to, oh, excuse me. Oh, I, I didn't want to make a reader certification class. You can get that anywhere. And I'm not trying to recreate the hierarchy of reader and client, but people were starting to do readings. And I was like, well, if they're going to do readings and I'm their teacher, I may as well show them what I know and they can do it however they want, but here's how I would do it. The second part of the class, I think we're going to get into um, how to use the Akashic perspective for conflict resolution and facilitate like being in community. And then the last part is about resonant sexuality and like beyond, beyond poly and how dismantling heteronormativity with the Akashic lens. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Leah Garza, I have such a crush on your work. I'm so excited about level two. This is thrilling. Yeah, me too. I feel like it's going to be the kernel of like this Akashic dating program that the records are like trying to tell me to start. Like really, like, like they're really, really like guiding me to talk about this thing called resonant sexuality, which is like what I think I am now, where like attraction is only based on resonance. For me, I no longer have a story of any identity. I don't have a type. And what does that mean then for how I relate to the world? What does that mean then for who I find marvelous and wonderful? And I don't know. It's just, I'm exploring this myself. Like, I don't really know what this is, but 
none of the stories out there for relationships and attraction are suitable to me. I don't match any of it. Um, Leah, in my work with the Akashic Records, um, I have been gifted this idea of creating a matchmaking service yeah. that starts as a Patreon. People just want to support this thing to exist. I'm a very natural matchmaker, so I'm excited mm. to know people and then put the connections together of like who needs to know each other, whether it be friends, yeah. comrades, lovers, whatever, yeah. but like these are people that need to connect. And like just developing the database and like using the Patreon money to help support somebody who can like make databases and like just create it as it flows, right? And so I yeah. love your you have this Akashic dating thing yeah. going through. Yeah. Like, dating is like such a trivial word compared to what like it really feels like what the records want me to do is like work toward shifting our paradigm of love. And how do we love and be in relationship with each other in, in ways that don't feel transactional, don't feel scary, don't feel fear-based ways that we can be our authentic selves, ways that we can. Yeah. I don't know yet. I'm going to let it flesh itself out for me. Um, I love this vision of like the way we receive is not the same direction that we give. And it's just an infinity loop of like, I just give to the world. I just sow my seeds and I just receive. And like, that's, yeah. you know, part of, you know, abundance is asking yeah. and receiving and, yeah. like, you know, just being at the crossroads of yeah. all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. Okay. Here's that last thing I was going to talk about is like, desire and like being like when you're really on the edge of like what's never existed before because you're creating things right like you're you're in the act of creating the the singer example I want a career as a singer to see what would happen if I sing mm -hmm. you know and like I I really think that like we're leveling up um what happens in the world right like we level up the collective that's something you taught me like it's like we level up the collective becoming more ourselves and pursuing more of those desires on the edge of the matrix which has not existed yet because this incarnation of heaven hasn't existed before yeah and then but then as we intersect with other people it's like leveling up and creating even more than was ever possible and not yeah. and think about that in dyads but then also in communities right like whole beloved communities coming together to create things that haven't yet yeah yeah yeah, I mean, a lot of people have, um, over the course of the last couple of years, I've like given up an Akashic perspective on political phenomenon that have happened, like, and people are very like soothed by what I have to say politically from the Akashic perspective. And people have asked me to comment on Israel and, and Palestine. And I, I don't want to, I don't. Um, I don't have anything I have an opinion I have an educated opinion based on my education and what I've studied but that isn't my work to tell people what my opinion is my work is to help people feel supported to do whatever they need to do to make the changes here so for like all the people that are in terror about what's happening over there but they live here. It's really hard to hear, but nothing you do here is going to affect that except maybe one thing, no amount of marching, no amount of phone calls. The only thing that feels real to me 
that might amount to something shifting is if we collectively shift how we engage with the economy. Mm -hmm. The government cares about one thing and that's money. Doesn't care about how many times you call your senator. It doesn't care about how many people are in the streets. It just doesn't. In fact, I, I made a post where I was like, in fact, it created a first amendment so that you could safely go protest in the streets. It doesn't have to worry about you. You're covered. Go do it. It's fine. We made that for you. Do it. It has nothing to do with us, us being the government. It's almost like it's a distraction from what they're doing. They're like, some of our amendments, our, our rights. We're caught up over here, whether or not we can have guns and they're over here, you know, spending trillions of dollars on things that are going to actually ruin your life. So to me, I'm like, well, the one thing they care about is money. So then we would have to do something that impacts their money. But in order to do that, we have to do it together. One person can't boycott something. It has to be collective. But in order to do things collectively, we have to learn to trust each other. And how do we do that in a very distrustful culture? How can we learn to trust each other? And so to me, I'm like, well, my work might be helping people break through the barriers that prevent us from trusting each other. How can you follow your desire that's away from the state? How can you learn that what you want is okay to want? How can you feel safe and supported in the world? How can you mitigate risk? How can you level up the risk that you can withstand in order to do the thing that your soul came here to do? How And, and that might amount to like having a conversation with a neighbor that you've never considered before. So I could tell people what I think about what's happening over there, my opinion on colonialism, on set, settling, on occupation, blah, blah, blah. But that just doesn't feel like it even matters for those of us that are not directly over there. But what does matter is how do we relate to each other here? That and it's that has that can have direct and immediate, you know, like all of these marches that are happening, like boycott this one day only that day will end and then it's business as usual. And so what you're responding to isn't, you're not trying to make an actual change. You're responding to your own nervous system that can't handle watching terror happen in other parts of the world. That's a nervous system response. You're trying to soothe yourself by protesting. I can't believe I'm saying all this because this is, this is cancellation level stuff, but I don't care. But like, but we, that doesn't mean that we're powerless. It doesn't mean do nothing. It means we have to get in relationship with each other. We have to learn to trust. We have to feel like we can take care of each other, not from one of those like Instagrammy community care, like Instagram posts, but we have to learn to take care of each other as a matter of survival. If we want to change our relationship to the government, because they will do everything in their power to make our lives hell if we don't operate within the roles that were assigned to us, which is what we talked about in the very beginning. If we decided to collectively stop paying our taxes, they will, they'll turn our water off. They'll turn our internet off. They'll make it, you won't have a cell phone. They will make it impossible that we already saw during 2020, how they were like using psyops and blaring loud music and sounds at all hours of the day across the country. You know, like they will do, we're, we are, we are like in a very grotesque 
We live in a grotesque place where we think we have civility, but we are just under the thumb of the most torturous government on the planet. But that doesn't mean we're powerless. So that's where I feel like my stuff is going. And I know like, well, what does a dating thing have to do with that? But it does. It's about relationality. So not to end it on that bummer. <laughs> yeah, guys, I love the shit out of you. Thank you for speaking <laughs> your truth on my podcast. Um, also, Cosign, our economic power is the most important thing we have. They want us to yell in the street. They don't want us to boycott Starbucks. Yeah. But, but like a real boycott. Real boycott. We, we agree to not engage for as long as it takes and that we will meet our own needs together. Yes. It, it, I don't even, I don't think, I, I think that's a lot of mental preparedness we have to go through to get to that level. Yeah. I have a sourdough starter. I'll make bread. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just have to figure out how to get milled grain in order to make the bread. Um, but we can do it. We can do it together. Yeah. I think Yeah. we didn't come here to fix a broken world. We came here to build the world of our dreams. Yeah. Well, I mean, we are the world it's being built. It's happening no matter what we think it's happening right now. We are the world. Yeah, yeah we are the people. <laughs> we are yeah. the ones who make a brighter day. So let's start living. We're old, Bevin. <laughs> How can people find you on the World Wide Web? You can go to my Instagram. That's probably like the best way to engage with me. Um, Crystals of Altamira on Instagram. You can also go to my website, crystalsofaltamira.com. Um, all the information for the upcoming cohorts, like the applications for living systems are going to come out in December and the applications for the mentorship are going to come out in January. Those things are going to go live first on my newsletter. So you could sign up on my newsletter on either of those places, Instagram or website. I don't send, I send like two newsletters a year. So it's not a big investment on your part. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. And it's always worth reading. I love your newsletters. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Bevan. Um, thank you, Leah, for your time and for just being you in the world and learning thank all you. the things you've learned so that you could arrive in this incarnation and interact. Thank you. I love to do it. And I'm so glad I know you. Thank you so much, Bevan. So glad I know you. Thanks, Leah. Bye.